Welcome to the Heretex Podcast with Mark Birch and and Justin Arbuckle. Mark, I have no idea why you should be on this particular podcast. I mean, what landed you in this place? Uh, well, somehow I met you and I needed a cup of coffee and you were polite enough to actually offer one. Do we actually talk about any sort of like technology stuff here? I, I have no idea. We do. But if you want to know exactly what technology stuff we talk about, you have to listen to the rest of the podcast. And beautiful podcasts start like beautiful relationships with just a chance meeting. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, today, we have Rob England. Now, uh, I'll be honest with you, we get a lot of emails, um, essentially with the topic being, how how does one go about managing someone like Mark Birch? Okay, so to be we, fair, we, we've had well, one email in this yeah, entire so podcast. Really, well, to be fair, it was a very, very emotional email, okay? Um, the person was clearly deeply concerned about the science of management, and your name was mentioned a lot. So we thought we would get an expert in, someone who can talk about how do we apply agile thinking, particularly when we are trying to change management ability. And so uh, his name is Rob England, and Rob runs a company together with his uh, partner called Teal Unicorn. Uh, just to be clear, the company is called Teal Unicorn. Not his partner. <laughs> so, Teal Unicorn. Yeah, how, how do how do we just really get like off off topic already? <laughs> it's it's a gift. So why, why don't we unicorns? Yeah. Speaking of unicorns, where, where is this one going? <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should be we, we get a lot of ribbing from the name I have to yeah. say but I, I think you should probably take control right now Rob so you've listened <laughs> to the podcast it's downhill from here this is your peak so just coast into it I will coast into it yeah what we do you do Rob so the, the the wife and I are uh, uh partners in life and work and we do consulting and training in two countries, in New Zealand and Vietnam, which is kind of fun because my wife's Vietnamese. So she does all the work in Vietnam and I do all the work in New Zealand and we, we sort of do a Laurel and Hardy act. So that's quite fun. And and so the the, yeah, the Teal Unicorn is a little bit buzzy, but it, it gets attention, which is what a brand should always do. It works for us. Mm -hmm. So what do you call an act where there's a Laurel and Hardy and then there's the smart one? Because that's essentially that's essentially what I'm looking for in my relationship with with Mr. Birch. So Laurel Hardy, sure. and then like, so he's just to be clear, he's both Laurel and Hardy. That's the level he's achieved. Yeah, well, we're we're pretty much the same. We we switch roles in each country. So in Vietnam, uh, it's quite wonderful to walk around behind her carrying all the bags and and equipment and and watch all the eyes bug out as the guy follows the woman. We're doing our little bit for feminism in Vietnam. It's it's good fun. Right. You are um, you are bringing innovation. What we do, innovation. Yeah. and and you know we are we are. So uh, we we did all this work in agile ways of managing in Vietnam, and um, and somebody said to us, "You should you should uh, Cherry's uh, my wife's name is Cherry. All her analogies are based around family." Because that they're very emotional people, the Vietnamese. Someone described them as the Italians of Asia, and uh, and so st stories about family really resonate with them. So she uses a lot of family analogies. And so someone said you should put an agile family training course together. So we did, and and we get huge numbers. And she runs a web page now uh, in in Vietnamese on on Facebook 
a Facebook page about agile ideas of family and raising raising a family. Yeah, Could we and- talk a little bit about that? That sounds so. No, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Oh no, I was going to just say, like, uh, yeah, I, I can definitely uh, vibe with kind of the Italian mentality. I'm very much a family person. I also use a lot of flowery language around uh, around my co-host. And tell them a lot of things and gesture quite a bit. So, uh, but yeah, I, you know, Justin, where, what, did, like, there was like a lot there that Rob just shared. Yeah. Where do you want I, to take I, I, I've never heard the family metaphor applied to Agile before. That is fascinating to me. Um, does it work both ways? So, meaning, does some of the Agile thinking work in family management? I use the term advisedly. And then does, how we operate in a family effectively apply into agile. Just, I mean, talk about what it what it feels oh, like. That's fascinating. Absolutely. And but let me define some terms first. So, um, we we quick plug. We wrote a book called The Agile Manager, and and it's the Agile Manager small a. So we're not talking about capital A Agile as uh, a method of doing software development or development of any um, highly fungible product, but we're talking about small a agile to mean the sort of the broader sense of the word that it has come to be used, especially with ideas like business agility. So, right. um, yeah, the concepts of, 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 we just say new ways of working to, mm-hmm. to sort of try and avoid the a word actually these days. Does that draw and, principles from lean, like the original capital A agile, or is it taken a different? Yeah. Well, I, I, it's, well, we say human systems agility. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on at the moment. If you take those three, there's a whole lot of stuff going on at the moment around restoring humanity to work and and creating a more humane and workplace. And so there's a lot of cultural things in, packed in there. And then human systems agility, the system side of it, there's all the lean and the flow and uh, complexity and understanding complex systems and then human systems agility packed into the agility is capital a agile and and embrace of failure and um you know all those ideas to make us more responsive to to change and so we wrap all of that up and call that you know the new ways of working and 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 managing and and so so if you how do we use the uh, sorry to interrupt i just want to understand the family thing because the family Mm -hmm. is if if ever there was a complex system, it would be the family. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and as soon as you start talking about human and agility and systems, right? Everybody's got their kanban on the fridge these days for the <laughs> to organise the family. So uh, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, just nod. nod yeah, nod, just nod. Yes, we totally. <laughs> I have a yeah. I have a Kanban on the fridge with all my honeydews on it, all the things I'm really? supposed to have done around the house. Yeah, it's, this is funny the, because uh, I mean, just as an aside, I uh, yeah. So with the whole COVID thing going on, you know, my kids are now at home doing school, and yeah. it was only then I just that I had seen firsthand just how atrocious their kind of work habits were because they're they're all younger and they've not develop those right they're in school and there's a teacher kind of over them the entire time and so now i have to try and get them to focus on how to work and so actually i set up trello to manage (laughs) the schoolwork (laughs) i was like i never imagined sitting there in front of a whiteboard going over how to use kanban and how to apply agile concepts to schoolwork 
Is it working? I risk my case. I risk no, no, my no, case, no. right? Is it, is it working, Mark? What's that? Is it working? Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, well, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I've seen a few things on LinkedIn about people applying their work principles now for family when they're all locked up together in the house. So the... the Frankly, I just can't keep my head down, but that might just be me. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you know, we're very emotional about uh, new ways of working, and a lot of what we do is is quite deep and philosophical in its roots. Uh, We try and keep that out of the work, but you know, you can go really deep into the philosophical roots of the change that is happening to work and society around the world. Yeah, you'd be on the wrong podcast for that, buddy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mark, Mark but, started off two minutes ago. <laughs> but it has these practical implications. And so you, you go back to it, right? Human systems agility. If, if you understand, especially there's two things going on, right? There's the rate of change the, and, and the social impacts of the rate of change. So that we live in a, in a VUCA world now. Right, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We live in a VUCA world, and and we have to change how we think in order to deal with the fact that we live that change is not something that happens periodically between stable states. So all of our old IT ways of working are built around the assumption that we have a stable production environment, and then we have a, a burst of we do a change. And then we go to a new stable environment that changes this episodic thing that happens in between states of stability. Sure. And that's been mythical for decades. I remember 20 years ago working in operations and looking at production and going, this is a myth. Production's never stable. There are changes all the time. We never, we could never put our point at something and say, that is the current stable production, you know, not for long. So, so, the, so what got you here won't get you there. The, the ways we worked in the past were an approximation to reality where we approximated reality to say that it's stable and you can say that I'm going to do this and then when I'm finished, it'll look like that. And, and, and we had all these mental models that were near enough because the world didn't change between when I said I'm going to do this and when I'd finished doing it. But mm-hmm. now we live in a world that's changing so fast that, that you have to iterate really, really quickly because between the period when you say you're going to do something and when you finish doing it, the whole damn thing moves. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's but, interesting yeah. that because, you know, just going on that, that, that thought process, it sounds like all the things that we've put in place to try and, and manage in a world where we think that change only happens episodically mm, totally. end up creating an entire other set of processes that, in a sense, made things a lot slower for us to change and adapt. Mm. I mean, is that kind of like exactly. how you've seen the world? Exactly, exactly. So the whole, the whole, again, you go to the deep roots of where Agile comes from. It comes from dealing with ex- extreme rates of change so that your requirements are constantly changing. And I love, I love you know, I'm pretty mean to project management, conventional project management and spend a lot of time throwing rocks at conventional project management. I like defining conventional project management as delivering on last year's requirements, you know? So Agile comes from this premise that you need to iterate real quick because between when you have the idea that you should do something and when you deliver it, it has to be as short as possible a time. And you need this oppor- these regular opportunities to reflect on, on what you're producing and how you're working because 
not only do you need to be quick at producing your product, but you have to be quick at changing how you produce your product because right. the world in which you work is changing just as fast mm. as the product you're working on. It's interesting because, I mean, that that kind of thinking is very core to lean and the whole Toyota Kata and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, Absolutely. But but oddly enough, I think that, and it could just be it could just be my family, but I, I don't think that families change quickly like production lines. Oh, but um, we do. Right? We we, oh, yeah. we discuss that. We live in we live in a we live in a VUCA world. So the family is constantly responding to changing conditions in the same way. You got the generational gap for a start that which has been with us for generations. But it wasn't a problem centuries ago, right? The, the, the child did what the parent did centuries ago. There wasn't mm -hmm. this generational gap. And since the Second World War, and maybe for a century now, we've had the situation where the children live a different life to the parents, and, and this gap is opening up, and that's just opening even wider. Mm. So we, we spend, or Cherry spends time counselling a few parents, you know, who are reaching out and help me. And, and one of the things we've struggled with um, I have two children on my own and Cherry has two children of her own and the last one is 17 and still at home. And, you know, the gaming thing, parents get so upset about children who spend their whole lives gaming, you know, and it's and trying to sort of talk them through not being as terrified of that as they are. That, you know, in my day it was, it, it was going down to the video parlour to play pinball and... Mm -hmm. and you know, we all had our distractions and sort of understanding that it's just a new version of that and and that actually there's a lot of positives associated with this as well as the negatives. And also understanding that it is what it is and the more you uh, try and force a child Embrace to it. stop doing something. Yeah. Right? yeah. Which brings us back to work and command and control, right? So, you know, one of the things we're trying to let go of is command and control management systems and understand servant leader and transformational leader and, and situational leadership and all of these uh, new models of management that are emerging to say, treat people differently. They're grown-ups. You've got to stop treating them like, like children or like lackey slaves. You know, you can't tell knowledge workers what to do any more than you can tell a teenager what to do. Yeah. Do you think um, yeah. I was going to say, is that because we haven't really changed our perception of what work is? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So we yeah, think, it's okay, well, it's like a production line. If yeah. That's how you think of everything. So code is just widgets on a production line. That mm. is no different than you know a bunch of Twinkies going down a, a conveyor belt mm. or cars. We just kind of assemble things in a exactly timely right. way. And so why would you need to think? Mm, exactly right. And so uh, you can tell a slave what to do. You can tell an industrial worker what to do. You can tell an agricultural worker what to do. And you can tell a clerical worker what to do. So as we first moved into uh, knowledge systems rather than, than you know manufacturing systems, clerical workers are people working on an industrial model. Sit at this computer and do this thing until you're dead, right? That's, that's the, the, the clerical work model. So many more and more people are now knowledge workers, and a knowledge worker is a completely different animal. We've always had knowledge workers. You know, you go back to the masons, stonemasons, but uh, but the percentage of our workforce who are knowledge workers is increasing as we move into a service economy, 
and now into you know informational economy and and so knowledge workers are a completely different beast you can't see what they do uh, they don't work alone doing transactions they work collaboratively with a team and so between those two things it's almost impossible to isolate the contribution of an individual to the output. So, so you can uh, no uh, longer observe them and measure them and hit them with a stick when they're not producing fast enough or good enough. That just you don't have that available to you anymore. Yeah. See, Justin, yeah, well, no, no more uh, sticks anymore yeah, in, in that was your one office. Time, okay, one time you beat a guy with a stick one time and you never hear the end of it. Um, but I'm still, <laughs> I'm still not clear on. And I'm, I'm sorry to keep on pushing this, but it's just fascinating to me. Just draw the link between family and the agile stuff that you started with, because I'm, I'm really interested in that. So I'm sort of I'm pulling out a few of the links as we go, and then jumping back. But so the family thing is around uh, the our attitude towards teenagers is quite similar to our attitude towards knowledge workers in that. Once a once a child gets to you know the seven ages of man and all that, once they get to about thirteen or fourteen, the parents' influence on the child is is down to a very low level, and and your ability to use discipline to make a child do anything is pretty much zero. If you try and make a teenager do something, they'll just go around your back. And, and and they have enough independence to just go and do it somewhere else if, if you stop them doing it at home. So we have to treat teenagers like knowledge workers. We have to invite them to do what we want to do rather than force them to do. We don't have a command and control mechanism over them anymore like we do for those first two seven-year periods of their lives. And and so we getting especially in Vietnam, which is still a very old-fashioned, um, forceful culture of parenting, to get them to understand that all you do, especially in the modern world, is you drive them underground. They just disappear into the virtual world and they ignore you in reality. Reaching out to uh, the, my, my son, who's about to turn 21, um, uh, I read a fantastic book, uh, from a Kiwi guy about raising boys. It's called Raising Boys. And and his key premise is that once they get to 14, they suddenly realize that dad's an idiot. After two, two after 14 years of dad's a god, he can do anything. They, they enter the real world enough to go, well, hang on a minute. He's not the, the, the all-powerful person I thought he was. And and so they will then disconnect from dad and, and they need other adult models around. And I realized that there weren't a lot of other adult male models around for my son. So I decided to keep that relationship and understanding this idea that you, you, command and control is now gone. Um, I bought him, well, he had some money. He and I together bought a 1975 Holden Kingswood, which uh, very few people on the call will know what that is, but a 1975 car uh, that he worked on from age 14. And we worked on together. And then I bought a second one for me. So we had his and his Kingswoods that we were working on. And, and through that mechanism, I kept him close through his teenage and retained his respect so that I could invite him towards behaviors that, that I thought were not with a great deal of success, I have to say, but because teenagers have to make their own mistakes, but <laughs> they have to do it. Doesn't matter what you say. 
but but I still put this mechanism in place because I understood I could no longer force him to do anything. And so we needed to have something we, we did together and that we talked about together and that we loved together to to try and, and retain that relationship. Yeah, that's it speaks a lot around like vision. Yeah. And yeah, I'm the same getting, thing. yeah, getting people aligned because if not everyone is on the same page, yeah, totally. you can get people kind of going on this off ramp and doing their own things and just ignoring you because like what you're trying to get people on board with does not align with what the people are doing the work. Yeah, exactly. Are wanting to do. Exactly. Exactly. And and so um a, a guy we we've spent a lot of time talking to is is Dan Mezick, M E Z I C K out of the US and he wrote a book called Inviting Leadership. And this whole concept of invitational leadership, that if you can't make them do it, then the only way you can get quality productivity out of knowledge workers is to invite them to work with you, is to open up and say, this is what we want to do. These are our values. This is our vision. This is what we want to achieve. Is that something you want to be part of? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the that whole Holden Carr uh, example. Just as um, Mark Mark said, it, there's there's a really nice analogy to like the vision or the mission that you're trying to get everyone behind. Um, and so, I mean, if if you were to give people advice on managing people who are, let's say, in their third age of man or woman. Um, I mean, intellectually, I think Mark and I are probably, I don't know, we're on the cusp of two and three, long way from seven, let's be honest. So <laughs> for managing people like us, uh, especially Mark, who's mostly feral, um, how do we, how do you, how do you go at managing people like that? People that are, you know, th that really do embrace chaos. The whole idea of vision and mission, uh, as, as Mark was saying, is, a, is, is, is really well expressed in your Holden car example. So, you know, how do we, obviously having that common mission is important, but there are also these attributes, different attributes of people at different stages in their life and also in different stages of their career. So taking people like, you know, Mark and I, who are, you know, um, shall we say difficult to manage, um, the, the term chaos monkey actually came from Mark Birch. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we we are really fine. Yeah. And upstanding employees of the corporate uh, cog. Uh, that's you know, we, we're we're that very much. That is true, but monkeys nonetheless. <laughs> so, so how do you how do you use your your approaches to to manage people who embrace the chaos? What advice would you give to managers? Managers of us. It's only seen chaotic by those who want the control, right? So. If, if 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 we can be a servant manager who's empowering people to to go where their curiosity leads them, then we'll have people who are who are creative in their problem solving and innovative in their solutions. It's it's when we try and standardize people into a human resource that fits into a predefined role in a job description that we destroy people's creativity and take their soul away and make them functionaries of the machine. 
Sorry, Sorry. Mark, I didn't mean to take his soul away, buddy. <laughs> you, but that's you, what you, we did. You, you've crushed my, my desire, <laughs> Justin. <laughs> I have no meaning left in my life. Isn't that what we do to people, though? Isn't that what we do to people, that we yeah, say, no, I, this I is your job, that. and, and you, you're not standard. You're not standard. You're not behaving the way you're supposed to behave. You're not doing the things it says in your job description you're supposed to do. Yeah. You, you, you're a round peg in a square hole. Square yourself up and get in that hole and do what we told you to do. But if I have a deadline, if, if I have something that I have to get done and I have a team that's trying to – how do I – how do I invite them to get it done on time? <laughs> by, by making them care. Or, or, by or making else. Them, You've got the or else. Make, yeah. By, by, by making, well, first of all, by making, by making them care, by inviting them to something they're going to want to be part of, uh, and by creating a team dynamic where we are all um, family, right? We're all in this together. Uh, but, yeah, but also a third thing is, um, and being reasonable in our expectations of people. So, uh, again, if 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 people are a, a human resource that you fit into a machine, then you try and run them at a hundred percent utilization. And in fact, when the when the priorities of the organisation exceed the priorities of the individual, we don't have any qualms about running them at one hundred and twenty percent. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to work weekends to get this done. Well, hang on a minute. What about me? No, well, we don't care about you. You have to work weekends to get this thing done because the company is more important than you are. Oh, that's really helping my engagement. COVID, yeah, I mean, so one of the one of the debates, in fact, it was a um, it was a great link that that Mark posted actually on LinkedIn, talking about productivity in the times of COVID and and, and stuff like that. And what, some of the discussion that we had was around. You know, maybe although people are reporting greater productivity, maybe it isn't actually greater productivity. It's just that people are spending more time at home and therefore just spending more time working. And so where the workday used to be eight hours, uh, it's now 12 hours. So it's no surprise that there's this perception of greater productivity, but it's actually literally just longer work days. So the rate hasn't gone like up, just the quantity yeah, has. I'd like so, to see some data. I'd like to see some data because I would – have thought that actually I'm not spending two hours a day on a commute anymore. I've got two hours of my life back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, well, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. I, I think that uh, certainly the article and we can post it in the show notes, the article was talking about greater productivity and the hypothesis uh, is that, well, it has to come from somewhere. So mm. either, either the virus has magically created people more productive um, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, or but here, people are just working longer hours. But here's a crazy idea: What if they're actually happier at home and are more productive? So, that's, so the whole the whole premise I hear in that article is 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 the cynical view of people as slaves who have to be hit to get work out of them, and and that the moment they're at home, how can they possibly be more productive because we can't hit them anymore? Oh, Whereas, imagine if they're happier and as knowledge workers, they really are producing more work. Yeah, see, we were, we were actually stunned there. We didn't actually say anything when you mentioned the word happy because, like, we, we you know, Justin and I know no happiness at work. It's kind of a <laughs> then, actually. 
But, uh, but we might, it's, it's a great challenge, uh, Rob. It really is. It's a great challenge. I'd, I've just um, kind of done a, uh, you know, a, a, a face slap. Um, I, I would have hit Mark if he was in the same room. Um, <laughs> it was a bit easier. But uh, it's it's amazing. You, you uh, I did immediately assume that um, productivity would be essentially invariant, and that's because. I wasn't actually factoring in the fact that someone may be happier somewhere else. I, 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 I acknowledge that. Uh, that's and and these, these modes of management become self-reinforcing. So if you treat people like children, you will get childish behavior. So when managers command and control manage knowledge workers and tell them they have to behave and do as they're told and follow the protocol, and we don't trust you, so we're going to have third parties assuring everything you do, and well, you know, of course they start behaving in childish ways because you're yeah. you're creating and so that just reinforces the perception that they're childish and can't be trusted. So then it becomes even more command and control. And and we spiral into the state where people are just cogs in a machine, being doing what they're told. I've given up trying to do anything mm-hmm. else because I get beat up. So I'm just doing what I told now. So I want to take this yeah. in a in a different tact and start to think about a lot of what you what we were talking about in the beginning kind of kind of touched on this idea of like failure and mm. failing and having having the space to fail but i've i've felt that over the years that management structures are in place to actually discourage failure in processes and in outcomes because there's an element of managing to risk and expectation that's built in a in a hierarchy and it builds on top and is reinforced through every layer of management from the top down. And even if someone very senior says, we're going to make a change, somehow it never seems to translate as effectively throughout those layers of the hierarchy because of that expectation of needing to manage that risk mm-hmm. and the expectations. I mean, I'd be fascinated kind of on, on your thoughts on you know, how do you maybe break out of that structure? How do you help an organization to maybe get out of that that conundrum? Mm, oh, totally, totally. And that's that's pretty much our thing. Our thing is that uh, these transformations. You know, I hate that word, but but because that implies that step change from a stable state of how we work to a periodic change to a new stable state of how we work. Transformation. Uh, that's why I don't like the word. We talk about advancing because it's a continual process. It's not a per- episodic thing. But, but you know, all these transformations, they fail. So many of them fail, and they fail exactly for what you said. They fail because the middle managers, their function in life is to control risk. That's why they're put there. They're held accountable for don't let things go wrong. And, and so as soon as someone tries to change how the system works, they go, I don't like this. This is a threat to the thing that it is my job to protect. And so they resist the idea that we would change. And, and it's, it's, it's reinforced. It's made worse by the concept of the J curve, that, that every time you change anything, you go backwards before you go forwards. Your, your performance follows a J. It goes down and then up. And, and it's impossible to change anything without going backwards before you go forwards. It's impossible. 
absolutely impossible. And so uh, all the middle managers see is that every time we change something, it goes backwards and they don't give it time to go forwards. They, they freak out and say, look, you've broken it. So they fear that J curve. And what Agile does is, is, is it says, the problem is you're doing too big a change at once. And every time you do a big change, you get a big J. And that's why every time we roll a big project into production, we break everything because we're, we're, we're smashing 10,000 changes into production once every six months. And then we're surprised that it goes way backwards. Well, you know, so Agile says, no, 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 lots of little J's. Lots of little J's, many small changes so that it's a little backwards and forwards, a little backwards and forwards, and so that we minimize that negative impact. And so this, all of this is to address, so I, I'm still coming back to your question, right? But there's so much packed into this that the, the, the middle managers, that we need to do many things. We need to change the system of management around them so that, yes, uh, failure is okay. Yes, failure is seen as a normal way of working, that, that the road to success is through failure, that we welcome failure, that every failure is an asset of the organization because it contains information. It's not a cost to the organization. And, and yeah, so creating that culture, yeah. Yeah, I just want to clarify yeah. one thing, though, Justin. Mm. When he says Please. little J's and big J's, that's not mm. J for Justin. <laughs> Oh, no, I, uh, yeah. look, I mean, we, uh, we, we were going to announce it, Rob and I together, that uh, indeed, all management <laughs> thoughts uh, appears to come back to one root, and that is the Justin factor. Uh, You'll have to start so, spelling your name with a small J, Justin, so that you're not a, a big J, J impact on yeah. the environment. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. I yeah, I don't, even, I don't even think like a, like a change in capitalization will... will cause any effect that Justin has on organizations. <laughs> once, a chaos, once a chaos monkey, always a chaos monkey, I'm afraid. Um, but hey, this, but this chaos monkey, this chaos monkey, this is, I mean, that's the, that's where we see failure as gold instead of failure as, as, you know, negativity. That, that yeah. failure well, it's, is, it's is failure learn, is how right? we learn. Yeah, yeah, we don't learn through success. Yeah. We learn through failure. Yeah, no, but if, if failure is uh, uh, a teaching opportunity, then Mark and I are probably some of the greatest teachers ever. So, you know, <laughs> this is our gift to you, everyone. Uh, so um, this has been absolutely fascinating, Rob. It really has. And you've, you've really made me think, um, you know, as we... Um, as, as we do these podcasts, we, we always try and take a couple of uh, ideas out at the end to, to give people an idea of, you know, what they could do the day after listening to, uh, to the podcast. And, you know, I've written down three, three ideas. You know, one is just this idea of uh, advancing. I, I, I love the use of the word advancing instead of transforming because you're right. It, it, we're always moving forward. And there are bumps along the way, but we're always moving forward, and we should have that have have that idea of continual improvement, uh, kaizen in, in in the lean sense. And then yes. um, this idea of inviting, I think, is also a really lovely word. You know, the idea of inv of invitational leadership, which um, I hadn't actually heard before. So 
you know, inviting people to be part of something. Your car metaphor is a great metaphor for this common mission. I think one of the things that excites, you know, Mark and I about the work that we get to do every day is is that, you know, we are, you know, building something. So, uh, you know, Mark builds, you know, great sales platforms and processes and knowledge bases and networks, and I build platforms and we get to build something. And I think just like you built a car, if our listeners can find a way of getting everyone to just agree, wouldn't it be awesome if we could build this thing together? I think that's just so powerful. Um, and so, you know, it's those those thoughts that I'm really taking away. And just the inherent value of happiness. Um, what, you know, are we actually factoring the idea of what makes people happy in every single decision we make? I think that's a very humane, uh, very humane and productive thing for us to be thinking about. How can we bring joy? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, do you have any uh, any other closing comments, Mark? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I'm still stuck on the on the little Jay's comment, but um, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it, but what I think is really valuable in the context of this this discussion is how do we have how do we create an environment where we have better alignment of purpose? And I think mm. if the one thing I take away from from this conversation, it's you know, do we ever have frank and open conversations about what our mission is, what we're trying to achieve, and what our shared outcomes are? Because ultimately, that that to me is the motivation for uh, getting a team aligned and getting out yeah. of this and breaking out of this this methodology of management worker and really mm-hmm. think of it as a team focused on accomplishing a mission and accomplishing yeah. value that we all feel proud of. And I think that yeah. if you are able to get to that, you have incredible potential. And yep. I, I would add, I'd add one more thought to all of that, which mm, linking into what you up. say, Mark, about manager worker is that we believe passionately that the thing that locks the advance in most organizations is middle management and so the key to you, you need to to advance in all levels of the organization, but the bit that gets stuck is the middle managers not wanting to move for really good rational reasons. And whatever we can do to change the system around them, the way they are managed, to set them different goals and to create a different environment where they feel safe to fail and they feel empowered to to make change. And they feel uh, not threatened by the things that we are doing, but actually see that it's going to improve their lives as managers as much as it's going to make it better. That that if we can unlock those that management layer, then the rest of it will flow. But so often, when these ideas fail, the the senior executives are all on board. Let's do this thing, and the people down in the grassroots, after a bit of initial resistance are like yeah we want this thing and it's the middle that's the frozen layer that's like oh you know this is dangerous to the organization right yeah yeah this will never work well uh speaking of things that will never work um uh, we seem to have uh, muddled along through this podcast so thank you very much for listening rob thank you for being such a fantastic guest i hope uh we can all be proud of this podcast thank you so much for spending some time with us it's been a pleasure being part of it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Rob. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Heretics Podcast. 
See you soon, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Heretech Podcast. And Justin, what should people do afterwards? Please leave a review. Please inundate everyone with your love for, well, if not Mark and I, because let's be honest, that would be unreasonable. At least our guests, which I'm sure you can agree, have been fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Bye.